Inside, it's comfortable. Inside a house, inside a family, inside a routine. But what if we widen our view beyond the fence across the street? Outside, we find people struggling with loneliness, poverty, families that don't look like ours or without a safe family at all. Jesus didn't call us to live by our neighbors. He called us to love our neighbors. Because 
most contemporary scholarship today says that Mark is the oldest of the, of the Gospels, that it was written first. Now, there's some other theories that say Matthew may have been written first, and so we looked at Matthew second, right? And we looked at Matthew to, to see what he had, and Mark and, and Matthew are very different because Mark uh, is recording Peter's account, and he's writing to a persecuted church. A church that is um, going through something that is really horrendous, and he, he really cares about getting to the main event as quickly as possible so that they know that their hope relies on and is found in Jesus Christ and the miracle of the cross and his resurrection. But Matthew had a whole different goal. Matthew was a teaching gospel that was written to a very Jewish audience. And so he edited a little bit off of what Mark's account looked like, and he, he gave some things in a little bit different slant to try to hit a different people a different way, but with the same message. And Luke, again, is going to take the same, um, the same message, and he's going to, to transform it just a little bit to try to hit a whole different audience. Luke's purpose was not to write to the Jews. Luke's purpose was not to write to a persecuted church. Luke's purpose Right? He states at the very beginning, he says, my dear Theophilus, right? Theophilus means God lover, the person who loves God. And it may have been an actual person, but it seems more that it was written as a convincing argument about the church. In fact, there's a part one and part two of Luke. There's Luke and Acts. They go together. They're written by the same guy. And when we get into Acts, we start finding that it seems to be an apology, a defense of the church. The message that has been going forth, in fact, it seems to be written to a Roman proconsul. And Luke seems to be putting together this whole story that he's not, that the church, that Jesus and what he started was not a threat to Rome. It wasn't about overthrowing a Roman government. You see, so many people missed it in the first century. They were certain that the Messiah was going to be a political Messiah. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were yearning for. But Jesus was not a political Messiah. There are people today that still miss this about who Jesus was. They still want to transform his message and say, I want to make his message a political message about what it is that we should or should not be doing politically. Jesus was not a political Messiah. That was not his intention and purpose. It's not who he was. And so he makes, Luke makes this defense. And it's a defense that says that the gospel is for all people. It's for the poor. It's for the outcast. It's for the woman. He includes more women in the stories that are there in Luke than any of the other gospel accounts. He says it's for everybody, not just the Jewish male inside of a religious system. That's only who could attain it. No, he says, no, this is wider than that. It's for everyone. So with all of that in mind, let's look at our 
text today. Hopefully you found it. It starts in chapter 10, verse 25, and it says this. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And he said to him, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the, in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered him and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied to him and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and then they departed. And they left him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on them. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And Jesus turned to the man and he said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said to him, he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this message. God, I know that this lawyer was attempting to, to entrap Jesus with this question about who is my neighbor, but God, I'm so glad that Luke wrote this account down in such a highly impactful teaching from your son. God, I pray that as we begin to unpack that message this morning, that it would be powerful in our lives. God, that it would ring true to what it is that you've called us to do. God, that we would be obedient to do it. Just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, my first job growing up was mowing lawns, right? Now, I know there's not a lot of lawns here in Arizona, although I have to tell you, I see a lot of lawn crews, right? Every day I see all of these lawn crews, and I would think with all the rock that we have, well, I don't think this anymore, but I used to think with all the rock that you have, there wouldn't be any, new, any need for these lawn crews. But what I found is, is it takes a lot of time to get rid of all of those weeds and to spray and to pull them out and to trim those bushes so that they look just right on all, you know, it's a lot of work. I was like, man, maybe I want to just mow, push a lawnmower again. Maybe that's a little bit easier. It's about towards 120 degrees outside. Maybe not so much. Anyways, my first job growing up was to 
mow lawns. I did it with my dad. He had a business for years and years that was a side thing, uh, and, and we did it. And my dad um, was incredibly generous um, that from the time that I was able to see over the lawnmower, um, he took me. Now, you probably know that I'm rather tall. So, listen, nobody here works for the IRS, right? Good. Good, because if you did, we couldn't tell this part of the story. But from the time that I could see over the bars of the lawnmower, my dad had me out there pushing the lawnmower. And here's what's great. He paid me for it, right? For every yard that we did, I got paid $10. Unless the yard took longer than an hour. If it took longer than an hour, then the rate became it was $5 per hour, right? The incentive was how quick could you get the job done? It wasn't about we're going to take hours and hours on this thing. We're going to turn these yards over as quick as possible. And my dad and I would have a race, right? I would do the lawnmower. My dad would do the edging and the weed eating. And the, the race was to see who could get to the blower first at the end of the job, right? And so if he did, then my dad threw in an extra dollar. He chipped in, and whoever got to that got the extra dollar. You had to pay it out of whichever side. It's a lot of fun. And I always knew when I was going to win whenever the client was home. Because if the client was home, the owner of the house was home, inevitably they would come out and talk to my dad, and I was like, I got this, right? Yeah, I might have inherited my ability to talk from my dad, all right? I know, as crazy as it sounds. And so we would do that, but there was a rule. There was a rule called the neighbor rule inside of my dad's business. And the rule was this. He said, number one, <coughs> I have to drink some of my own water up here. Interesting. He said, number one, he said, I don't pay you for mowing our own lawns. He said, number two, I don't pay you for mowing the neighbor's lawns. Now, as a kid, I was like, wait a second. That's $20 off every week. We've mowed for at least 12 to 14 weeks a year, right? So that's like $240 a year. I missed out on all kinds of money as a kid, right? And so you can imagine that it wasn't long before I wanted to challenge my dad on this rule. And at first, first I thought, well, you know, the neighbors were here before me, right? Dad's lived here a long time. But we moved when I was in junior high school. And you know what rule still moved with us? The neighbor rule. What? I was like, I can understand, like, when we had lived there for forever and you knew them and this, that, and the other, but the rule moves with us, Dad. I mean, come on. Really? Why in the world do we have this neighbor rule? Dad, why in the world do we do this? Who is our neighbor anyways? You know, interestingly enough, that seems to be sort of what happens here in this context, right, of this text. This lawyer gets into a conversation with Jesus. And he has a he opens up with this question about what do I have to do in order to get eternal life? Well, I've long been told that a lawyer never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. Right? At least a good one. Maybe a bad one might ask a question they don't know the answer to, but a good one, they're supposed to always know the answer. And so Jesus, instead of answering the man, turns back to him and says, well, you're the lawyer here between the two of us, right? You've read all of this. What do you think the answer is? And the man answers him, and he says to him, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answered. Now what's interesting is, this is the same answer that we've seen Jesus give when we looked at Mark's account, when we looked at Matthew's account, 
Jesus gave this answer. So it should not be surprising to us that the lawyer, probably more so than quoting back the truths of Scripture, is quoting back to Jesus what Jesus has said. Almost in the sense of Jesus puts it to him and he says, well, isn't it true that you said this? And Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. This is exactly what it is. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus, after he says to him, great answer, and he says to him, he says, do this and you will have life. Now remember the guy's question wasn't about how to have life. His, his question was about how to have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. So why in the world, why in the world did Jesus answer him back, not with the answer of eternal life, but about how to have life? Well, I'm not going to answer that question for you today because today's question is, who is my neighbor? So if you want to know that question, you're going to have to go do some work this week on it. And I'll point you in some right directions on it. One of them is by doing some study on the word Zoe, right? Z-O-E is where we get the word Zoe from. And Z-O-E is the Greek word that means life. All right. So immediately following this exchange, I said it's going to drop one on you like that. Just leave it there and move on. So immediately following this exchange, the lawyer turns around and has the follow-up question. Right, this is like that moment, if you watch any sort of courtroom drama, right, I imagine that this is that moment where the, the lawyer has gotten the answer and he's like, I've got him right where I want him. Then he like kind of walks back over to his, to his desk and he like shuffles some papers and then he's like, I've got the question that's just going to nail this guy. It's going to display everything for everybody. And so he's like, so, who is my neighbor then? Right, he turns back and he's like, I've got it. Here it is. Here's the question that's going to nail you. He says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, before I jump into this question today, I just want to acknowledge something up front about the story that Jesus tells to answer this question. Right? Because Jesus tells the story. It's a well-known story. Um, in fact, so you don't even have to be a believer or a Jesus follower in order to be familiar with this story. Um, it's told at lots of different settings about what it means to be a good neighbor, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. But here's the thing, is that most often, it has been rightly said that we try to jump to being the hero in this story. We want to be and to become the Good Samaritan. And that we believe that that's who it is and what it is that God and Jesus was specifically saying in this, is that we are to be the Good Samaritan. But I think that misses something about what Jesus was saying and teaching right here at the very beginning. Because the only person who can truly be good is God himself. And Jesus is, God is, the Good Samaritan in this story. In fact, if anything, we are much closer to being the man who was beat up on the side of the road than we are to any other character in this story. So if you came into church this morning and you're feeling beat up by the week that you just had, Jesus understands. And he is the good Samaritan who wants to come and heal you up. 
He wants to take care of you and he will pay whatever price it takes in order to do that. And he will settle the account when he comes back. If that didn't make you say amen this morning, I don't know what will, right? Because to know that we are that beaten up person, but Jesus is the good Samaritan who comes to us. In fact, if we were to come back, we would realize that really God has always been the good neighbor in the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, right? He creates the heavens and the earth, and he invites us to come over. Then Adam and Eve, right, little Applegate moment happens, right? Little Applegate, they took a bite of the, whatever fruit it was that they weren't supposed to eat, and they got kicked out. They broke the HOA rules. God kicked them out of the neighborhood because of it. Hey, listen, don't break the HOA rules, all right? Just tell them that. Might have some personal experience with that. Not going to go there. But Adam and Eve were kicked out of the neighborhood. And so God was like, great, how do I be a good neighbor now? And then we find out that God calls a group of people towards him. He says, I'm going to move closer to this group of people so I can be a neighbor with them. And in Exodus chapter 19, he gives them a, a set of rules, a command, the Ten Commandments are given to them. And it's a way for him to come and to be close to them, to be neighbors with them. And then in Leviticus, we find out that he gives them instructions for how it is that he could dwell amongst them. If you'll build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, I will be close to you. I'll put my dwelling place with you. And then the prophets, the prophets speak of a day that God would come in the flesh so that he could be close to them. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. It says, and the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And last week we shared this, that I love how the message translates this, right? The message says, and God moved back into the neighborhood. So true. And so we see that in the person of Jesus, God again moves closer to us. And then Paul, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you, speaking to the believers that are there, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells inside of you? So the message of the Bible is always God moving closer to us. Why? Because he is the good neighbor. And he wants to be our good neighbor. And we have the ability to become his dwelling place, his home. And so while it's true that Jesus is rightly asserting himself here, as the hated one that loves us anyways right we are really more of that wounded man and if i but but really if i'm a jesus follower if i'm a jesus follower and i'm supposed to do the things that jesus did then at some point i am still called to become a good neighbor And so I'm left with the same question that the lawyer asked, right? Jesus, who then is my neighbor? 
Who am I supposed to neighbor with? Now, I love Luke's detail, right, as this lawyer is asking this question. Luke says, he, he adds this detail that he says, but he, that's the lawyer, was desiring to justify himself in this question. Right? He was designed to justify himself in this question. Now, justification is a really interesting thing. Usually, usually it means this. We're wrong. Right? Any men in the room? Right? We've ever tried to justify yourselves to your wives? Yeah. It usually means that we're wrong. A lot of firsthand experience with that. My wife's nodding her head in the back of the room. Just telling you. But justification, when we look at it in the Bible, right, we put this tag along the side of it. It means just as if I had never whatever. It doesn't mean that it equals something. Justification is not equal with, with perfection, right? That's not, it's not an equal equation that goes on, but it is something that equates it up. And so this man says, I'm going to justify myself about what this standard is. I'm going to pull myself up to this standard with what my beliefs are. And, you know, we're pretty good about justifying things. We can make justification about just about anything. We can make an argument in our mind about why it is that we are right about something. And so here it is. This lawyer had some preconceived notion about what it already meant to be a good neighbor. He asked Jesus this question because he already thought he was living up to it. He was like, there's really only one answer to this. I've got Jesus. There's only one way that you could possibly understand this word neighbor that I'm asking him. It's got to literally be the person who lives next door to me. How could it be anything else? That's what a neighbor is. The person who's next to me. Right? It's the person for this guy who looked like him, who thought like him, who talked like him, who believed like him. They were the same. He was thinking about the Jewish man who lived right next door to him. He was the same. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The lawyer believed the word neighbor was literal. He believed it was literal. There was literally only one answer. And surely that's got to be the right answer. It's got to be my fellow Jew. In fact, in this guy's mind, he's ready to throw back at Jesus the verses that, that he's just quoted from, right? When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus 19.18. And just before that part... Just before it says to love your neighbor as yourself, it says this. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. Right? It says your own people. That's the Israelites. So he's pretty sure that that verse is just qualified who it is that you should love your neighbor as yourself as. And that is Israelites. Another man who's just like me. What's interesting is, Jesus doesn't jump onto that, right? Instead, Jesus begins to share a story in response to this question that he's been asked. And in this story, we see this man who's been beaten up and left for dead. And three people come upon this man, and only one of them helps him. And at the end of the story, Jesus asked the lawyer who it was that was his neighbor, 
And the lawyer answers him, the one that showed mercy. It was the only one out of the three that was not Jewish. The other two were, were both high and, and mighty on, on the Jewish scale of everything. Not the third one. He was the only one who didn't hold the same values as the lawyer who had been asking the question. He was the only one who would have had different belief sets than the lawyer that was asking the question. And he was the only one who took care of him at any expense. If you're taking notes, here's the second thing I want you to write down. Jesus pushed the word neighbor to its outer limits. Jesus pushed the word neighbor to the outer limits. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say to this man that the literal people that live next to you are not your neighbors. That's not what he says to him. He simply pushes the man outside of this idea and to the next set of neighbors that existed near him. This man was doing a good job, presumably, of loving the guy that he thought was his neighbor. Which is why he thought, if I ask this question, I can justify myself because I am taking care of my fellow, my fellow brother who is next to me. And so Jesus says, I'm going to push on this just a little bit beyond what it is that you might think that this includes. And I'm going to push to the country that neighbors right next to you. And I'm going to call them your neighbor. Now we miss some context here on, on this group of people, the Samaritans. Because we go, well, I don't really understand what's such a big deal about this. I don't have this hatred for the countries that are around me the same way that you're telling me that, that there might have been this hatred that existed for this group of people that lived there. So I want you to take for a, just a moment a, a thought idea with me. Let's just pretend that Mexico, who is our neighboring country just to our south, let's pretend for a second that in World War I that they joined the Central Powers. And then they lost. But then in World War II, they joined Germany and the Axis powers. And even though they lost there again, still they, they thought the winning side now was Russia in the Cold War. And it wouldn't be long before we would begin to have this disdain for them always joining against our enemies that are against us. And this group, the Samaritans, they were, at one time, they were the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722, when the northern kingdom fell, right, they began to align themselves with every enemy that would come against the southern kingdom. Over and over again, they would align themselves as a way to try to protect some of who they were. But at the same time, they had abandoned who God was. They no longer served the same God. They served any God that came along. Whoever it was that was coming their way, that was in power, whatever God they served, they worshipped that God. Whoever it was that came in, they married them. They became part of it. Their culture became part of their culture. And they were intermingled. And it became difficult to distinguish that there was a difference between them and the rest. But they still knew that they were sons of 
Abraham. And they would cling to that. And they would use that at any moment that it would help them to be able to navigate and negotiate whenever they were doing something. But it was all about them and their own self-preservation. So you can imagine that when Jesus brings on the Samaritan into the story, the crowd probably goes, boo, hiss. They were not happy about this character coming onto the scene. And I have a feeling the lawyer probably knew where this was headed from the very moment that Jesus introduced this character, right? He's already taken out the first two. They didn't do anything. And here comes, here comes the guy that nobody likes. Nobody wants to associate with. Nobody wants to talk to. And he's the one that helps. And at the end, the guy can't even bring himself to say that it was the Samaritan that helped. That's how much hatred existed, Right? He says, well, the one who showed mercy was obviously the neighbor. He can't even say his name. He can't even attribute that there was something right about this person. That's how, that's how much he hated this neighbor. That's the trouble for us today, right, when we come to this text more than anything, especially as an American Christian, right? There are, we, we struggle with pushing to the outer limits of where Jesus was trying to say that we, we could find our neighbor. We understand that Jesus was talking about a neighbor being the poor. We understand he's talking about it being the oppressed. We understand that he's talking about the, those that um, might be considered our enemies, but we're America, we don't really have enemies, right? Most of us believe that away in the way that we do our everyday lives. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. American Christians, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize the word neighbor. We have a tendency to over-spiritualize the word neighbor. We see this passage of who is my neighbor, and the first thing we say is, let's do a word study about what it means to be a neighbor. I'm guilty of it this week, right? The first thing I was like, hey, let's look and see what the word neighbor is supposed to mean in the context of all this stuff. And we want to do a contextual study and we want to do a historical study because that's what we do. We want to over-spiritualize this word neighbor. And the problem is, Jesus was pushing beyond what the guy was already doing. He was already loving the person who was literally next door to him. Right? Because as a Jewish man, he knew this. He had this understanding that God had specifically placed him where he was at. His house came from God. God was the one who had given him his home. The land that he was in, God had given it to him. The place where he was working, God had given it to him. The place where he hung out and did social life, God had given him the opportunity to do that. All of these things... God had given to him, and so he understood that if God had given it to him, that he had a job to love this person that was next to him because God had placed him there. And so I don't want us to miss this for just a second. If God really is in control, if we really believe that God is in control, and we believe that we cannot make any decision that would thwart his plans, we can choose not to be included in his plans, but we can't thwart them. And so if we really believe that, then the places that we live, that we work, that we play and socialize, and even the places where we worship, 
we should be neighboring them. That's the start. That's where the Jewish man started when he was trying to justify himself. And here's the problem. I don't do that. I don't even start with this guy who just got lamb blasted by Jesus about what it means to be a good neighbor. I don't even do the first thing that he was doing, let alone have the ability to reach all the way out here to where Jesus was pushing to the outer limits of it. And so I think there's four places that God said that we should be called to, that we are called to, that he's placed us in, in order to be a good neighbor. Listen, if we took an honest assessment of these four areas in our life, right? If we took an honest assessment of it, and we just said, start with the people who live just around you. In fact, uh, near you, there should be a little magnet, right? Now, I just want you to know, this is just a tool, right? I just want to equip you with a tool. And some of you that are on the back row, um, you may you may have a couple of extras and if we need some more we've got them in the back at the very end but if you were to imagine yourself here in the center right and these are the people that are around you let's just start easy for just a second let's just start at the bottom right here where we worship just look around you and see do I know the names of the eight or ten people who are just sitting around me Right? Do I know them? Take a moment. Look around. See, see if you yourself know the eight or nine people who are sitting around you. Now, here's, a, here's what a good Baptist does. We sit in the same place every week. Right? So, you have a good shot at what I just said. Right? Now, some of you are new. Your first time in the room. It's good. You're, I don't expect you to do anything on this one. All right? But, now, let me challenge those of you that have been in the room for a while. Look to the other side of the room for a second. Can you name eight to ten people on the other side of the room? And let me challenge you one step further because Jesus didn't want us to just know their names. He wants to know things that are going on in their lives. And these, the people we worship with, are people that look like us, think like us, believe like us, are headed the same direction as us, right? That's what happens inside of the context of this. By the way, by look like us, I don't mean skin color, right? Because heaven's going to be filled with all the colors of the rainbow. Amen. I'm so glad about that. Right? But this is a friendly place. This is a safe place. This is a place where we should be engaged in conversations that are happening about, man, I, I noticed you over there, and I don't know that we've ever talked before. How can I be praying for you this week? What's going on in your life? Because I want to be a brother or a sister to you. I want to be the extended family that we're supposed to be. Listen, we're not huge yet. Right? And even when we get huge... This is still the goal. The goal is still that we are a large family, a large body of believers who know each other, who are praying for each other, who are lifting each other up, right? Because that's what it means to be a neighbor. And Jesus says, be a neighbor here too. Let's move up one. What about where you hang out? So I hang out in two places, the soccer field and fantasy football league, right? <laughs> that's what I like to do. It's fun. And you know what? When it comes to naming things and telling stories, I probably can do a pretty good job in that one. Those are people that I like. They have similar interests as me. We like to talk about football together. We like to talk about who's going to win or not win. Aaron, I don't know. I tried to help him back there for you today. So, just saying. Uh, 
Right, but we know stories of those people that we hang out with. Why? Because that's what being a good neighbor is. Let's move up one. What about your workplace? Right, we go there day in and day out. You may know the names of people that you're working around, but do you know their stories? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Or you just talk work with them because you're there to work? God says, no, I've placed you here to be a good neighbor too. What about home? Listen, I give you this as a tool, as a reminder. And I, I have to say, in the first couple of weeks, I've been blown away because I've gotten several stories back from some of you that instead of coming up here to a trunk or treat for the entire time, you said, you know what, my neighborhood is doing a block party and we just talked about neighboring and so I feel like I should go over and like hang out with my neighbors for a little bit. Amen! You got something! I, my work's done! All right? Some of you have, have shared stories about you've met a new neighbor that you, because you were thinking about this and being intentional about it, you had a conversation with them, you were out walking the dog and, and, and engaged them and you learned something about them that you didn't even know them before, but this helped to bring some awareness. That's all that I want to do. This is not something legalistic where I'm like, here's what you need to do. The best way that we're going to save the entire world is you go home and fill in all of the names around this thing and until you fill it all in, you're not going to go to heaven. Thank goodness the test is not... How good of a neighbor was I? Right? And sometimes I think we get confused because we go, Jesus said the second greatest commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. So I got to go home and I got to do all these things in order to do it. No, but he still says you should be a good neighbor. What? Does being a good neighbor mean I have to tell him about Jesus? Absolutely. He's part of your life, right? He's your neighbor. You can talk about one neighbor to another neighbor. That's called, I mean, you would normally call it gossip. When we talk about Jesus, we call it gospel. It's good. <laughs> Listen, we want to use this as a tool. I want you to stick it on your refrigerator to just remind you to be a good neighbor. As I um, first moved here, and um, we, we moved into a, a neighborhood, first thing I did on a whiteboard was I, I drew a little tic-tac-toe board. Right? And my whole goal was is that I was going to find out who the eight people that lived around me, and I was just going to write something on the whiteboard on there each one of them, so I could just remember who they were. And what I found is that I began writing all around the edges of it, too, because I learned, as I was thinking about it, I learned who the person who was cutting my hair was and how I could pray for, for Carol, and I, I learned how who the person that was over here was and over here was, and so I had to put more things down, and my eight was not big enough for what it was that I began running into. And why did it happen? Because I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. Later, I found out that it's called block map. I had no idea that's what it was called. But as I was coming into this, I was looking for something that was like that to be able to give you guys as a tool. And I found out it's called a block map. And there were several churches that they did some research inside of, and these were large churches, mega churches, that did some research inside of their churches about block mapping. And they came to find out, and I don't say this to put any shame on you because the shame's on me as much as it is anybody else. But they came to find out that one out of ten people could name eight to ten people who lived around them. They could fill in all of the eight to ten, or eight to ten people that lived around them. I can't. I can't do it. I'm so thankful I met a brand new neighbor, right? I've lived there for a year and a half and I met him for the first time a week ago. Then they said this, 
less than 3%. So three out of 100 could also tell you something that's going on in each of those eight people's lives. Not just what car they drive, but something about what's going on in their life. I'm pretty sure Jesus knows what's going on in my life because he's a good neighbor. You know, when I asked my dad that question, why the neighbor rule? Why do we not charge it? My dad began to tell me the story of both mayors. Got both houses that we lived at, the next door neighbor, their names were Mary. And both Marys were widows. One had lost her husband to, to cancer and one had lost her husband several years before that point. My dad said, the moment that I began to hear their story, he said, I knew what it is I needed to do. And he said, I felt like God called me to be a neighbor by mowing their lawn for them. He said, it's the easiest thing I could do, be a good neighbor. And he said, that's why we have the neighbor rule. Why we don't charge our neighbors. He said, because we know their story. And it's our way of loving them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for today, for the message, for the, the tool that you've blessed us with, the challenge that exists about being a good neighbor. God, I pray that we would be challenged to be a little bit better every week. God, we don't have to, you didn't tell us that we need to go home from here and learn all eight of them this week. But God, I, I pray that we would take on the challenge of learning one. Meet one. Go knock on one door, find out one story, and write it down and begin to, to be a good neighbor to that person. God, I thank you that you were and are and always was the good neighbor for us. Would you express it? Holy name we pray. Amen.